Now, folks, we're going to get started tonight pretty quickly. I hope this, uh, the video series and then the lessons we're going through, I hope it means a lot to you because, I mean, if you stop and think about Daniel and the culture that he was in and how anti-God it was, very much like the culture that we live in today. And you think of Daniel standing uh, almost alone at times in a minority. And uh, everybody around him just pagans. Everybody in leadership around him. And the pressures that were put on him to bend the knee to serve these foreign powers and foreign gods. And we're going to see more about that tonight as we're going to jump into chapter 3. Because you might be wondering... Well, what about Daniel's friends? We've heard about Daniel, but what about Daniel's friends? Do they have the same convictions that he had? I mean, we see how they were mentioned in chapter 1, and then we see in chapter 2, Daniel gets them to pray with him. Uh, But you might be starting to think, are they not quite as strong in their convictions as Daniel? So I think tonight, when we get into the scripture reading and going through the scripture after the video, we're going to see that they were just as much committed to to thriving in Babylon as Daniel himself was. So uh, have chapter 3 ready, because we're going to try to go through a lot of it as much as we can tonight. But uh, somebody lead us in prayer before Jonathan gets the video going. Who would do that? Amen. Hi, I'm Jean-Yel. Welcome back to Thriving in Babylon. In this series, we've talked a lot about trusting God where we are, hardships and all. Larry encouraged us with the truth of who God is, sovereign and loving. And he has also given us practical ways to develop biblical hope and gratitude that can help us survive and thrive despite hardships and hostility. Today, we'll take a closer look at the story of Daniel to identify what set him apart in Babylon. More than a strong faith, Daniel had a humble disposition that communicated respect even towards his enemies. And he had a deep reverence for God. We'll explore what humility is and how it influences those around us. First, listen to Lana share how simply listening to a coworker with different beliefs helped them both grow in mutual love and respect. I'm Lana, and I'm a professional makeup artist in the fashion industry. As a Christian, I had to come to a place in my life where I couldn't keep Jesus in the closet anymore. Not that necessarily I'm witnessing on set or anything, but that, you know, it wasn't something that I put in the closet and then I would put it on just on Sundays that I'm a Christian or that I wouldn't talk about it. So um, I got to a place in my in my faith that I had to be obedient to the Lord and I had to um, do what He's asking me to do. even things that I was afraid to do, that I didn't want to do. 
I had uh, walked into my agency and, and went up to my booker, James, and James is gay. And it was a time uh, in the media when gay people were mad with uh, Christians, and uh, I had an opportunity uh, to talk to James, and he kept on saying to me, you know, you think I'm a sinner, you know, I, I, you think I'm a sinner, what's the Bible say? And, you know, James was raised in the church, and I knew that he knew what the Bible said. And at that moment, I was like, God, why are you putting me in this situation? Why me? I mean, James is my booker. It could involve, you know, my work. And, and why are you wanting me to tell him? You know, I knew at that moment that I was taking a huge risk. I was taking a, a risk of hurting him. I was taking a risk of my work. I was taking a risk of people condemning me in my business. And I turned to God immediately because I didn't know what to do. So I just lifted up really quick prayer. God, what, why? Why am I here? And what am I supposed to say? And the only thing I could really come up with at that moment was, James, I believe that the Bible is the truth. We were able to listen to each other's heart and you know, he told me, he goes, you've taught me, you've taught me a lot, you know, today that uh, you, you were just willing to listen to me. And just because we might have different beliefs didn't mean that we didn't love each other and that we couldn't respect each other. I really do believe that all anyone really wants is to be heard, to be loved, and made to feel like you're willing to hear what they have to say. And that's what Lana's done throughout our entire relationship. I think that God was just asking me to be, you know, Christ's love to James. And so um, I had to be obedient to what God was asking me to do. One of the most powerful traits we can have in our lives to influence the culture around us is this thing called humility. And Daniel had humility in amazing ways. Now, humility sounds kind of like a stained glass word. What in the world does it look like in the real world? And in the real world, humility shows itself simply by treating other people as if they're more important than we are. Kind of, kind of think of the honored guest at a, at a dinner party. Uh, you treat them as if they're more important than you. You're treating them with humility. You're treating people with respect. Now, one of the problems when it comes to biblical humility is simply this. We've got some goofy definitions of what humility is. A lot of people think that humility is uh, when the fastest guy in the class says, oh, I'm not very good. No, humility doesn't say you're not good at what you're good at. Humility is simply an accurate assessment of yourself. Jesus was humble. He told people he was God. Jesus was humble. He said, humble, and he said, you need to come and follow me. Uh, you can be humble and tell people, hey, I'm the leader. You can be humble and tell people you're good at something. But if you're really going to be humble, along with that, you are going to treat them as more important than even yourself. And that's not just going to be the people who are more important, but it's going to be everyone. Have you ever thought about this? Daniel kept getting promoted in the household of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, how in the world do you get promoted serving such a godless king if you're serving him poorly? or if you're treating him with disrespect, or you're rolling your eyes every time he says something. No, Daniel kept getting promoted because he served this godless king so well, he was worthy of promotion. Because he treated him with such respect, he was worthy of promotion. In fact, Daniel realized that everyone, even the godless, are in the image of God. Nebuchadnezzar is 
judged by God, Daniel is the one who delivers the message. Now, frankly, if it had been me, I think I would have come up to him and said something like this, Neb, I've been praying for this to happen and the hammer's finally fallen. But that's not what Daniel says. When Daniel delivers the message of judgment on this godless king, he says, oh, king, I wish it was anybody but you. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar was willing to listen to him. No wonder two other kings listened to him. He was a man who treated everybody with respect. The humility that a Jesus had when he washed the feet, washed the feet of even a Judas, that kind of humility will change our world. It'll help us not just survive, but thrive in our Babylon. I'm a teacher. I teach 10th and 11th grade history in downtown Dallas. I came into it wanting, of course, to share the love of Christ. Um, and the way that I do that isn't nearly as, I think, obvious as I hoped when I first walked into my school. There are rules or even constraints on what I'm able to share. And so when those opportunities arise, it's difficult to weigh the balance of what, what's appropriate or what I'm allowed to share sometimes. Of course, walking in as, a, as an educator, my heart is for my students. Um, and so wanting them to know the Lord and not being able to share that is difficult. Um, and so, but being able to share, I guess, my faith by the way that I love them and serve them while creating inroads to share the gospel with coworkers has been really important, really important. So my experience when faith does come up in my school or even when I'm teaching, especially because of the content that I teach, um, typically it's pretty hostile towards Christianity. Um, it's pretty hostile towards the gospel message, um, but more so especially towards Christians. Um, and so it is difficult to lead those conversations on when they often end negatively. Seeing and teaching my students gives me such an image of the gospel. And I walk in every day wanting to serve and love my students, wanting to give them something that's really good. Um, and so when they reject that, it reminds me that I too, only by the grace of God, did I accept, um, did I accept the gospel myself. Being intentional in relationships is probably where I see the most fruit, I think, and especially not being able to share my faith explicitly or openly or directly, um, then certainly building relationships with people is the number one way that um, I get from coworkers all the time. You know, you're different than most religious people I know. You know, you're different than those, you know, mean Christians I see on Facebook, you know? Um, and so just knowing that I'm able to share and to invite in and to, um, even if I'm not necessarily having people over to my house every day, um, I'm still extending hospitality by meeting people where they are every day. Uh, relationships take so much time to build into and to, to cultivate. And so when it comes to students, uh, that was the first lesson I learned as a teacher was that there's no way to, f to speed up building trust. Um, and so with students, with families, um, just spending time, I think especially with them, getting to know them, uh, really knowing each other's stories um, has been so important in building trust with them so that I can have those conversations. So now a year later with the same students, I can say, actually, here is the worldview um, that is you know, maybe in contrast to yours. And here's how people believe differently. And here's why it's possible to be intelligent and be a Christian at the same time. Understanding um, that time is important and being able to bear the insults or bear negativity or bear the teasing, whatever that was, um, because it meant there's a possibility that one day by being faithful, I'd be able to share Christ with them.
I believe it's the the hard work of being humbled over and over and over again um, in order to build a character in me that will one day bear fruit in some other season. Though her co-workers and students were hostile towards Christianity, Antonia loved and served them without bitterness or an agenda. And the only way she was able to do that was because she understood the gospel herself, once hostile to God, now saved by grace through faith. Let's see how that humbling reality could change the way we approach people. Humility is such an incredibly powerful force when it comes to influencing people. When we serve others as if they're more important than ourselves, when they know that we like them and treat them well, they're open to listen to what we have to say. Unfortunately, one of the things that's taken place in our culture, especially our Christian culture, is what I call mission creep. And over time, what we've done is we've moved away from persuasion as our primary goal to cultural warfare. And when that happens, it undercuts our evangelism. Now, there is a sense in which we are in a cultural war. But whenever those we interact with who do not yet know Jesus think of themselves as being at war with us, they are naturally defensive. And whenever we approach them with the idea that we're at cultural war, rather than our number one goal is persuasion, everything shifts because they become the enemy. And you don't win many enemies over with warfare. Now, how in the world are we supposed to go about this thing of, of persuading them? Well, I want to go back to this simple thought. I've got to get it into my mind that those who do not know Jesus are allowed to live as if they do not know Jesus. And that when they are enemies of the, of the cross, it's not that they are my enemy, they are victims of my enemy. A number of years ago, there was a passage that just rocked my boat and caused me to completely change the way that I dealt with people that I consider to be enemies of the cross, uh, uh, spiritual opponents, even those who mocked my God. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. It says this, it says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now I gotta step back and be honest with you. Uh, as I study the Bible and learn more and more, I got better and better at arguing with non-Christians about why they were wrong and why God was right. I, I became quarrelsome and guess what? They became defensive. But the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The passage goes on and says, but kind to everyone. Now I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I can make everyone not everyone. But doggone it, every time I look, if a Greek as deep as I can dig, everyone means everyone. The greatest opponent of our Lord to the person who is walking with my Lord that I look up to. And then he goes on and says, the Lord's uh, servant must also be able to teach, must patiently endure evil, not frustratingly or angrily. And what we are to do then is to correct our opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare or the trap of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you see at the very end of this passage, here's what it's telling us. The way to treat the people who have been captured by the enemy and are actually leading his parade of doing evil is to treat them with gentleness, to treat them with kindness, not to be quarrelsome to be everything that Daniel was in his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, a genuinely humble man. 
In this session, we were encouraged to pursue humility. Larry said that when we treat others as more important than ourselves, we represent the gospel, exude gentleness, and have the power to influence the world around us. Both Lana and Antonia have experienced hostility towards their faith, but they continue to treat everyone in their path with the same love and respect they have been given in Christ. What about you? Do you struggle maintaining humility in hostile environments or treating everyone with gentleness? Who might the Lord want you to get to know? You can consider these questions and more as you go through the Bible study lesson together. See you next time. The uh, video segments don't always track exactly along with the book he wrote on this. Um, they kind of jumped, got ahead of where we're going to be. Uh, they got into chapter 4 a little bit tonight, and we'll do that some next week, about Nebuchadnezzar being humbled. Um, Tonight we want to concentrate on chapter 3. Chapter 3. Now, talking about humility, he's mentioned how Daniel and his friends were respectful of the king, even though it was a pagan court, and how they were humble before the king and respectful, and that certainly won them a lot of ground. But uh, we're going to see in chapter 4 how Nebuchadnezzar finally, once and for all, gets humbled himself. In fact, some believe that by the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar actually becomes a believer right before we see him pass off the scene. But uh, find chapter 3, and uh, let's pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. Got it? Everybody got it? Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial office, uh, officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So furious that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men? And throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... They will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. 
Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. You kind of get the impression Nebuchadnezzar's a slow learner, isn't he? I mean, he's already seen the hand of God work, and yet he's still doing the foolish stuff that he's doing in this chapter. Ran across something a while back uh, from Joseph, Joseph Stoll, who used to be over Moody uh, Bible Institute. He talks about a breakfast that he used to be invited to. The Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast is an annual event held the first Friday after the week of Thanksgiving. If you work in Chicago, attending the breakfast is the religious thing to do, second only to showing up at church on Christmas and Easter. I've gone to the event for the last 15 years. I can remember years ago when the name of Jesus was freely used in prayers and sermons alike at the breakfast. And though that has been slowly changing, this year's event was marked by what seemed to be an intentional effort to eliminate all references to Jesus from the platform. If it weren't for the marvelous music of the Wheaton College choirs who unashamedly sang about him, the whole morning would have drifted, would have drifted in and out without any mere mention of the name of Christ. I doubt if the choir master had been required to submit the text of the music to screen them for references to Jesus giving what took place in the rest of the program. The MC opened the early morning get-together by reading an excerpt from Diane Eck's bestseller, A New Religious America, How a Christian Country has become the world's most religiously diverse nation. He then underscored that diversity of religion in America now demands a new paradigm regarding the expression of our faith. He called for a fresh wind of cooperation and tolerance. His words set the stage for all that was to follow. A representative of Islam chanted his prayer in the name of Allah. A woman rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a minister from a characteristically liberal Protestant denomination each led in prayer in a coordinated sequence of prayers and then finished by praying in unison. I kept waiting to hear it. But Jesus' name was not mentioned once. No one said that he wasn't welcome, but the message was clear. All our gods are to be equal. And when that's the agenda, the authentic Jesus is trouble. It's difficult to include one who has claimed to be the only way to God when a diversity of paths to God is being celebrated. What was unspoken in the symbolism of the prayers was made unmistakably plain in the message that followed. 
The rector of Trinity Church, Wall Street, New York City, was introduced as being deeply involved in the problems and ministries surrounding the disaster of September the 11th, 2001. I looked forward to what he had to say. He proved to be an excellent communicator as he charmed us with his wit and well-timed humor. We were deeply moved as he related stories of tragedy and triumph at Ground Zero. However, as his message progressed, he put into, my, he put into words my worst fears about post-9-11 America. In essence, he celebrated the fact that after September 11th, a whole new sense of the importance of God had returned to America. As he put it, theology is the name of the game after 9-11. But, he noted, given the broad diversity of religions in America, we now need to give up the quote-unquote traditions that divide those of us who believe in God. He praised the diversity that the prayer segment had expressed. It was then that I began to realize why Jesus was unwelcome. He was telling us in no uncertain terms that an only way Jesus did not fit in any longer to the new religious order. That's the sad reality we've seen in our country, isn't it? You can pray, just don't mention the name Jesus. You can give a religious talk, but again, just don't name the name Jesus. And certainly don't act like he's the only way to God. That's what we're being hammered with in our culture today, right? Well, the times that we live in call for faith. They're dangerous times. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in the last days, dangerous times would come. Perilous times would come. Folks, we've got to live lives of faith. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to believe God. Uh, it, it's impossible to, to please God. But folks, if we're going to live by faith, what type of men and women do we have to, to be? We've got to be men and women of conviction who are willing to stand on God's Word even if it's not popular, even if it costs us. I heard it said one time, an opinion is that which you hold to as a personal preference. A belief is something you give mental assent to. But a conviction is something that grips your soul and changes you. We need to be men and women of conviction, don't we? What are your convictions? Where do your convictions come from? What are they based on? How far are you willing to go with your convictions before you would hit a line that you might compromise? I hope you wouldn't. But folks, those are some questions that the book of Daniel begs us to deal with, right? 
Daniel 3 is a great testimony to standing up for what you believe, even at a high personal cost. It's a moving story of courage and conviction. And today we need more people like these three young men and like Daniel. People's lives who can't be bought or dictated by anything, certainly not by money. I was reading recently, I came across a, a story about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, of course you know Charles Spurgeon, probably most famous Baptist preacher ever. Uh, he was brought up in England and called to preach at an early age. In his early 20s, he became pastor of a church uh, in, in London. And so many people came to hear him that they had to move out of their building and expand. And then by the time the expansion was completed, they had already outgrown that building, so they had to build bigger. Spurgeon used to have to beg his church members not to come back on Sunday night. So people from the community, especially the lost, would have a seat. Well, at the same time Spurgeon was preaching in London, guess who was making a name for himself in America? P.T. Barnum. What was he doing? Circus. His job was to get a big old crowd and fill a tent. Well, he heard about the crowds that Spurgeon was drawing. And so he contacted Spurgeon and he offered him huge sums of money if he would only come to America and be a part of his circus. And Barnum would even give him a chance to speak some. You know what Spurgeon did? Wrote him back just one little short line. And that one little short line was read Acts chapter 8 verse 20. Well here's what Acts chapter 8 verse 20 says. Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Spurgeon was a man of conviction. Between chapters 2 and 3, probably as much as 20 years have passed. Now, when we come to chapter 3, who are we introduced to? These three friends of Daniel's. Now, so far, you know, we, we were introduced to them in, in chapter 1, but they've kind of been in the shadows since then, right? Who's been in the forefront? Daniel has. And we've come to see quite clearly that Daniel has passed the test. Daniel is a man of conviction. Daniel is standing on the word of the Lord. Daniel has lived a life before Nebuchadnezzar that is without compromise. And we've seen hints of that also in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But again, they're kind of in the shadows. And so somebody might be thinking, what about them? Have they begun to blend in with the crowd a little bit? Well, what's chapter 3 tell us? No, they're not blending in one bit. They're taking a stand. 
They're not going to compromise either, even if their faith costs them their very lives. They're cut out of the same cloth that Daniel is. Folks, again, I want to remind you that these, these are still fairly young men. Now maybe late 20s, mid 30s, still young men. Think, think of the powers that were, the, the, the powers that be that were all around them. The men of high influence, the political power. The money, the influence. Think of the pressure these guys might have been facing. What about you? Any pressures to compromise your faith? I hope not. I I mean, I hope you don't compromise. I hope you and I will be salt and light just like these guys were. We, we see in our text tonight that convictions like these guys have certainly take courage, right? Takes a great deal of courage. You look back at verses 1 through 12 again and, and you see that these guys' convictions took courage. What do we see Nebuchadnezzar doing in verse 1? He's constructing this great image. It's an ego thing. It's meant to honor him. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's been a general for more than 40 years. And he's, on top of being king, a general, he's never lost a battle. And what's he already learned from the previous chapter that we've seen? Where, Where was he in that statue? He's the head of gold. And Daniel said to him, O king, you're you're that head of gold. So chapter 3 is kind of an ego trip for him, right? He doesn't want to be just the head. He's wanting to be the whole statue, right? He wants to be everything. Like I said a moment ago, he's a slow learner. But he wants it all. I mean, it's unbelievable what the guy does, knowing what he's already learned so far from Daniel and what he's seen Daniel's God do. It, it, is, it is astounding what he does here in chapter 3. And it shows you what? Lost men in power that have absolute power will stop at nothing sometimes. They're hungrier and hungrier and hungrier for power and attention at any cost. Doesn't matter who they run over. Anybody ever faced anybody like that at work? A a secular boss that was a pagan... And it didn't matter who he or she ran over top of. Didn't matter who got caught in their wake. Anybody in here ever worked with anybody like that? Okay. Well, he builds this image in honor of himself and his accomplishments. 
Some commentators think it's an image of himself. Others think it's an image of Marduk, one of the principal gods of the Babylonians. Ninety feet tall, nine feet wide. Was it pure gold? Was it overlaid with gold? Some of those things are talked about in in some of the literature. Some have tried to run numbers based on today's inflation, and they've broken it down what what this statue probably cost. If, If it was gold or depending on what the thickness of it might be, that it was a statue, if you could put it in today's monetary terms... One gentleman has estimated the value of it to be at over $2 trillion. $2 trillion. But now remember, the Babylonian Empire was vastly, vastly wealthy. It was known for its wealth. What's the plan? Everybody's going to bow down to this image. It's, it's going to be an attempt for Nebuchadnezzar to exalt himself. And it's going to also be an opportunity to consolidate his empire uh, under, under one religion. Hello? You see any, do you, does anybody see any similarities to today? consolidating everybody. Like say, you can talk about God today as long as you talk about God. You know, he's like sitting on top of a big mountain and any pathway you want to take up to him is fine. Just take your own path. Don't criticize anybody else for any path they take. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the unified thing people want to operate under today, isn't it? That's why I said a moment ago, you start talking about Jesus being the only way and you start talking about naming the name of Jesus and praying in the name of Jesus. And I tell you what, some people are going to come unglued at you. I won't name who it is. There's a man in our congregation talking to me a couple of weeks ago about one area of ministry that he's thinking about getting into and he said pastor I'm just I'm having a lot of trouble with it because if I go down this route he said I just can't go down that route the way everybody wants me to because this particular pathway that he's what he would love to do in ministry has now become so diverse and uh, well I'll just tell you he's he's Wanting to be a chaplain in some institutions. And he's being told, you're not going to minister to people in the name of Jesus. Certain avenues in that field that he wants to take. He's already finding out, being told, sir, You can be a chaplain and talk to people about religion in general or God in general, but you're not going to be specific with your Christian God. That's a shame, isn't it? 
But again, more and more, we're seeing that in our world today. And so he's talking to me now, Pastor. What? Fortunately, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to go along with what they're telling me. I need to go down some other pathways of ministry. Can you, can you help me find other areas of service? But again, what I'm saying is, if you want to be unified under this new motto that people live by today, hey, everything's just, that's probably what Nebuchadnezzar's trying to do. Just unify everybody together under one religion. Consolidate his empire together. It's a political thing. It's a religious thing. And that's what the Babylonians did. They would capture people and they would try to get them acclimated into their society. And, and so their society might have different factions because of all the different people groups that they'd captured. And so the Babylonians would do things to try to then bring these diverse people together under the Babylonian flag. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. He wants everybody the same. Politically the same, religiously the same. And so he's going to have a ceremony that deifies himself and his false gods. He, you, we see how the seven different classes of officials are named here. It's assumed that they're listed in order of importance. This is going to be a great celebration in the Babylonian Empire. Probably going to make front page news of the Babylonian Times. It's estimated probably somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 people are in attendance. Nebuchadnezzar's got his choir, his preacher, he's, he's got everything. But we know he's not a Baptist because he doesn't have ushers taking up an offering, right? <laughs> what's, what's the plan? What's everybody supposed to do? When you hear the music start, everybody bow down. And if you don't, what's the penalty? You're going to be burned to death. Bow or burn. That's your choice. Bow or burn. The Jews executed people by stoning them to death. The Romans executed people by crucifixion. The Babylonians executed people, most often, by burning them to death. Jeremiah 29 verse 22 speaks of how Nebuchadnezzar roasted Zedekiah and Ahab in the fire. Well, as everybody bowed down, these three would not. All over this plain, you could see a sea of backs. And yet, here's three lone figures. They're standing. They won't bow. Now, again, what have we said about them? Young men, long way away from home. What would some people reason? Nobody on... Nobody will know. This, this, you know, it's kind of like the old saying today. People still have this saying today. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Hey, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. It won't matter. 
Besides, you know, if I go ahead and bow now, I can keep my life. And by keeping my life, I can kind of continue working on the inside to try to make a difference over time. If I'm executed, there goes my influence. So I might as well just go ahead and bow and do what Nebuchadnezzar's commanding. I won't mean it in my heart. And I'll, I'll have all these years to try to make a difference. That's what a lot of people would have done. What would you have done? Don't answer that out loud. Just, just think a minute. Seriously, just stop and think a minute. What would you have done? given the same choice. These guys would not bow. They had conviction. And convictions take courage. And where is it that we get convictions from? Here. And notice something else about convictions. Do you settle your do you try to get them straightened out and worked out and all in place when you're in the heat of the battle when you're in the crisis moment? Is that when you try to figure out what your convictions are? No. When have you got to settle your convictions? Ahead of time. Ahead of time. And you got to get them from from God's Word. That's the importance of being in God's Word and knowing God's Word. Blew my mind what Earl told me this morning that I announced before the sermon. That this guy at this conference he went to, going to conservative evangelical churches across the country, only 26% of churchgoers even know the Ten Commandments, according to this guy. Folks, we got to do better knowing God's Word. We've got to do better. And we've got to base our convictions on God's Word. And I have a feeling that you and I, we'd, you'd better go ahead and be getting more and more of your convictions settled because it's getting worse and worse out there. It really is. Uh, I mean, some of the attacks on religious liberty that we've seen over the past decade just blows your mind. Where, where are we going to be? As an, are we going to enjoy the same freedoms that we've had for generation after generation? Are we going to still have these privileges we have now? The day may come when you and I have to make decisions like these young men. And when our convictions might cost us. Who knows? We might see a day like this. Just saying, it could happen. Don't think it could never happen here. We might see it happen someday. Well... You see next that convictions involve faith. Convictions involve faith. This, this king, 
King Nebuchadnezzar, he's furious, but he thinks a good deal of these men, and so he gives them another chance. He, he calls them in for a personal interview and an accounting of the situation, but it's clear he also intends to live up to his threat. He's going to give them another chance. But if they don't, they're going to have to pay the price. They're going to have to die. Well, look at, uh, look at verse 16 to 18 again. Old Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. you got to love verse 18. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. What do these guys know? They know that God could save them. But they didn't know if he would. Why didn't they know if he would or not? Because there's sometimes in the Bible that we see that God lets his saints suffer and die. Because he's got a bigger lesson. What if God would have let them die? Would God have ceased to be God? No. God would have had purposes. If God would have let them die, God would have still been sovereign. God had purposes in letting them die. Folks, I, I hope you don't have the attitude as a Christian, God's going to always keep me safe and, and keep me from ever experiencing any trial or tribulation or trouble in my life. God would never let me die for my faith. I hope you don't have that idea. Oh, there's, there's some religious groups out there that talk like that. Right? If you just have enough faith. The prosperity gospel. If somebody dies or suffers, they just didn't have enough faith. If they had more faith, God would have saved them. No, sometimes God lets his servants die. Think of all the apostles with the exception of John. And John died a prisoner working in the mines on the Isle of Patmos. But church tradition tells us all the other apostles, they suffered horrible deaths. Look at Job. God said of Job, have you considered my servant Job a righteous man? This is God saying of Job. Satan, Job's a righteous man. And yet God let Job be tested. Right? God may save us, and we hope he does. But even if he doesn't, old king, know this. We are not going to bow to you and your image. Folks, you've got to love that. Faith like that. They've got faith. They've got courage. They've got convictions. And these guys are at peace. I mean, here, the, think about it. Think about what's going on here. The other officials, they're jealous. 
They're jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is angry. He's furious. And then these three young men, the very ones who are about to give their lives, they've got peace. Think of the irony in all that. You'd think they would be the ones that are troubled. They're not troubled. They've got peace. Hey, our lives are in, our, our lives are in God's hands. And we're okay with that. If we die, we die. But we are not going to betray our God. We're not going to deny Him. Again, think of you and me today in the society that we live in. Think of the application for that, for you and me. We see the world's going this way about Everything is going its way about. And what are too many Christians or so-called Christians willing to do? Just kind of fall right in and go along with the crowd, right? Oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be made fun of. I don't want people at school to, to make fun of me or mock me. Or I don't want people at work to make fun of me or mock me. You know, if they know I'm going to take a stand on that, I'll have a target on my back. Folks, we we got to be willing to live by our convictions. We've got to be willing to die by our convictions, right? And I tell you what, if you're not willing to live by your convictions and you're not willing to die by your convictions, something's either wrong with you or something's wrong with your convictions. You need better convictions. Convictions bring scorn, verses 19 and following. Nebuchadnezzar's countenance changes. He must have been thinking, why won't y'all just go along? Can't you hear people today? Conservative Christian, why won't y'all just go along? Why won't you go along with same-sex marriage? Why won't you go along with abortion? Why won't you go along with this transgender stuff. Why don't you just go along with all that? Do you Christians have to be troublemakers? Why don't you just go along with everything? You can hear the world saying that today, can't you? That seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's attitude. So he has the furnace heated. Babylonians had large furnaces. It's said that they, they look like huge Milk bottles, the old-fashioned milk bottles, if, if you could um, picture that in your mind, with a side door and a smokestack and all. But, but think in terms of a, an old-fashioned milk bottle and uh, open at the top. And they made bricks in these ovens, bricks that they used in the Babylonian Empire. Well... Notice about Nebuchadnezzar's anger. He has it heated so much that the guys who are throwing them in, what happens to them? They die. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. I'm almost done here. I'll let you go. I hadn't forgotten my word to you. So they tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. Remember again, these are 
these are important officials now. They've become officials. So they've got royal robes and turbans and, and all of that on. Nebuchadnezzar's going to make an example out of them. These guys don't want to go along with my agenda. I'm going to make an example out of them. But what's the problem? They won't burn. They won't burn. You, you say, how can that be? Let me tell you something. If you believe Genesis 1-1, which I do, but if you believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you should not have any problem whatsoever by the fact that God protected these guys from the flames and they didn't burn. If God's determined to do something, he can do it. I don't care how hot he would have made the furnace. And who was with him? Jesus. He's, in the Hebrew, it's literally one like a son of the gods. But who do you and I know that to be? Jesus. Jesus. One more time, at the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson again. Your God's the only God. Wow, your God's the only God. Well, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, we thought you'd learn this in chapter 2. We thought you'd learned it in chapter 1, then we thought you'd learned it in chapter 2. Now we're thinking you're learning it here. We're going to see out of chapter 4, you still haven't learned it quite yet. But he is going to learn the lesson before it's said and done. Some quick lessons. Faith will be tested. Faith will be tested. Previous victories do not ensure the absence of further tests and trials. Secondly, the world resents persons with strong convictions. Thirdly, God can keep you either from the trial or through the trial. He may not keep you from it. But if he so chooses, he can, he can keep you through it. Folks, when God works, what does, what does God ultimately do? He works in a way to bring glory to his name. So everybody stands back and says, Wow. Look at what God did. Now, again, think of these young men, what they're being told to do. In an empire that wanted to consolidate itself politically and religiously. And you think of what's going on in society today. And all the agendas that are coming down the pike in 2020. I mean, you, you go back to Genesis and you look at things that are clearly outlined there. Life, marriage, gender. And it's like our society today is saying, we're going to take every one of those building blocks that God has established 
And God, we will not submit to you. This is what society is saying. We're not going to submit to you in your ways. We're going to go another way. And Christians, you better go with us. Or we're going to make trouble for you. So, what are you going to do? Are you going to bow? Or are you going to burn if it comes to that? Are you going to bow to the new agenda out there today? Or are you going to take a stand for Jesus Christ regardless of the cost? What are you going to do? And I'll leave you with that. See you next week.